Hello and welcome back to the Astral Flight Simulation Podcast, where we navigate the digital world through art and culture. Today's episode is a three-hour-long discussion on Quentin Tarantino. However, on iTunes and Spotify for free, you can only find the first two hours. In order to get the full three-hour discussion, you'll have to become a paid subscriber to my Substack. For $5 a month or a one-time $50 payment, you can not only get this episode in its entirety, but you can get... The full episodes of the last few that came out on iTunes and Spotify, like the Ted Kaczynski and the Blood Meridian episodes, which have at least another hour of discussion. Now, for the Quentin Tarantino episode, we go on to talk about the philosophy of film, the condition of film in the digital age, and we talk a lot about uh, some of our other favorite directors, like uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. Robert Eggers, and David Lynch, and we talk about some more Quentin Tarantino as well. So please go to my Substack, astroflight.substack.com, and become a paid subscriber. You'll also get more on Ted Kaczynski and Blood Meridian, as well as several backlog episodes and some written content that you can only get access to as a paid subscriber. So I hope to see you there and enjoy the episode. And one last thing, this episode is a supplement to an article me and Spendo wrote together on Quentin Tarantino and his new book, Cinema Speculation, where we discussed uh, the second half of his career, starting at Death Proof. And we will have a second episode on Quentin Tarantino about the second half of his career. So stay tuned for much, much more from the Astroflight Simulation. Thank you. The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore in the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say you will discover a building god and reach the side of the floor. Welcome back to the show. Today I have a highly anticipated episode. In fact, the episode I probably spent the most time preparing for and put the most effort in so far. And today I am joined by the esteemed Spendo, known as Spendo Kush on Twitter. I anticipate I'll be introducing Spendo to a lot of people because Spendo is someone who shines in Twitter spaces, but uh, might not tweet that often so i don't know if people if you haven't caught him in a twitter space you know i don't know if you i'm I'm hoping that i'm exposing spendo to a lot of new people he is uh an undiscovered gem and i'm really proud for what i assume is your podcast debut is this your podcast debut podcast debut as spendo i've done one under my Christian name, uh-huh. like three weeks ago, randomly. But oh no! Well, I now in this I... in this very studio. But this th- that was kind of an impromptu one. This one is the one I've been most excited for. Spendo is in an actual podcast studio for the the only guest I've ever had in a podcast studio. Spendo, why don't you tell the first of all? I feel I feel slighted. I feel scorned. I feel like a 
I feel like a used up. No, I'm just kidding. I thought I was your first. <laughs> no, I am really, listen, man, I'm really excited and really proud. And the people who do know you are know what we're in for. This is going to be a top-notch uh, episode. So I want to, um, I want to put my money where my mouth is and introduce you here. So why don't you tell people what your background is? Um, I'm really into film and you are like the film guy. I mean, that's how we met talking about film. So so uh, however you feel comfortable giving your background on film and your experience in the film industry, why you're even sitting in an actual podcast studio right now. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, thanks for having me. Like I said, been looking forward to this. So, you know, cut to the chase. I've only ever wanted to do one thing, and that was to make movies and direct um started when i first picked up like my dad's like old vhs like little camcorder and he was nice enough to like let me dig around with it so kind of my first moment of falling in love with something i would say is is that moment and you know fast forward to the years through my teenage years um learning to edit and kind of any time in high school, I had a chance to do like a a group project or video project. I would just petition my English teachers or even like my science teachers, just let let me and a few of my boys do like a a video project on like death of a salesman or like Hamlet or whatever. Um which which led me to just getting into getting into a good film school. I went to uh <clears throat> I applied to one and basically just said you look if i get into this film school i'll go do film if not i'll go to just like a general college and do the normal thing i got in um to usc and kind of just took off from there that was my foot in the industry because it's such a i mean you're in la with a lot of support network support so i just got my leg in there um well, let's um, not to cut you off, but uh, I'm proud that you're actually my second guest who went there. Amanda Millie is also. Oh, yeah, Amanda, there. that was a good episode. Well, I'm like, you know, head over heels for you guys. So this is like this is why I do this. But for those who don't know, what is USC? Who? Why is USC famous? Why is it significant? Who went there besides Spendo and Amanda Millius? I mean, it's it's mostly known as like one, the first film school in like old Hollywood started by uh Fairbanks and a few other people but it really is um it's like the Star Wars school man it's like it's George Lucas um came out of there and started with Coppola um what's it called American Zoetrope Coppola came out of uh UCLA actually but this was a time when you know the American new wave of cinema was kind of ripping and and these these guys these young writer directors came out with a lot of lot of uh good thesis projects and writing samples and were allowed to just kind of move to San Francisco and let it rip and out of that you have American graffiti in the conversation and then comes star wars comes the godfather um so that's that's really what put usc on the map in the modern era was that that george lucas you know pizzazz and then uh 
Spielberg never went there, but he he invested like fifty million dollars into the school in like the last, I think, ten years ago or so, maybe ten to fifteen, and so did so did George Lucas. So they're trying to keep it going over there, and it's 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 a good school, but it's it's really it's really because it's it's in the heart of the industry, and um, that's that's what can get you ahead, especially you know someone like me who I don't come from an entertainment industry family, so like getting in there was pretty much what what allowed me to cut the line so to speak and then you have you have uh professional work in the industry as yeah among, yeah among, so yeah. so it took a while after film school to like basically i call it getting hazed by the industry and then you know got my got my contacts and then started directing my own zero budget music videos on the side um, with some local artists. And then since then, um, I had, a, I had a pretty, pretty big break with one record label. And then I've done probably like 20 to 30 music videos and a few, um, just a few commercials and like branded content stuff over the world. I'm still, you know, excuse me, I'm still waiting to get that first feature to paper and, and, and well, not to paper, but to get into production and just go so i can start saying i'm a feature film director but um that's coming and i'm excited for it it's just it's just a weird time in the film industry so so it's it's, it's a very it's weird a lot time. going on yeah well we're looking for that rich patron so to fund spendo's project here um yeah man i mean i don't want to we're gonna we're gonna focus tonight on um so me and you have been talking for months about how we want to talk about quentin tarantino and initially I, I pitched to you, let's do an episode on all 10 of his movies. He's the only director who I've seen every single one of his movies. And 10 isn't the biggest number, so it would be easy to tackle. But as we were like discussing how we want to talk about Tarantino, it became very clear that the way we want to talk about him only applies to a few specific movies. Because it's very important to us his his place in the pantheon of american directors and the 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 significance his film uh his film uh library well his filmography uh because we have to distinguish too because tarantino had his hand in a lot more movies than the 10 that he both wrote and directed so um we have to distinguish that as well and his i mean i could i could expand on this quite quite significantly he, his 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 career has at least two distinct eras to it if not more um and his impact on the film industry as a whole is really unparalleled at least in his generation so um while his whole filmography is fodder for our discussion we decided that the three most important movies of his to talk about are Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, and Kill Bill 2. So both of those. Um Yeah, we so, can call those two we can call those two movies. Yeah. Yeah. I recently just found out, I didn't actually know this, that those two movies were actually supposed to be one movie. And the reason it came out as two is because he would have had to cut like an hour worth of content to to fit it into one feature film. So he just decided to do it as as a sequel. Uh, which I didn't actually know. In my memory, somehow, Kill Bill 2 had came out a couple years after the first one, but apparently there's only a six-month lag. Did it's you remember six that? six months, yeah. I remember, yeah. I was... 
gosh, maybe seventh grade or something. And it was bizarre because I wasn't like allowed to see those movies at the time in the theater with my parents and everything. So I had to wait for it to come on. Yeah. Like DVD or go see it at a friend's friend's house, you know? I remember those. And days, then man. I remember the kids who like got to see it. I was kind of jealous, but I, I didn't really understand Tarantino yet. Um, I didn't really fall in love with his stuff until maybe maybe uh, high school, early high school. And I remember them talking about how crazy it was. And then six months later, another one came out. I've never heard of anything like that. And it was just just seeing I remember seeing the trailer and then, you know, Oscar season happened and then like another trailer. And and I don't think anything like that has happened since. I mean, compared to Avatar, right? <laughs> like. Those yeah, sequels I mean, are like 15 years apart. Yeah, it's crazy. So let me ask you. Uh, so we're doing those three. Those are the three movies we're going to talk about the most. And we're going to explain why. But it, I just want to make it clear that Tarantino actually isn't my favorite director. Uh, that's not why I, I wanted to talk about him with you. Not only that, but none of these, none of his movies are like my favorite movies except Kill Bill Volume 2. That's my favorite Tarantino movie. And on my list of favorite movies, that's the Tarantino movie that's closest to the top. I think it's his best movie. I almost, you know, I just went and rewatched most of his uh, filmography. And I just think it's like objectively true that that's his best movie. Um, it's certainly my favorite. So what is your favorite of all of his movies? Not just these three. I would probably go with Pulp Fiction. Um, yeah. looking well, back on it, but honestly, like going into film school, my favorite movie of all time at that moment in time of my age, like was just kill bill. The first one or the whole just, thing. I just called it kill bill, you okay. know, and it's, it's interesting. Cause I've always just seen it as a, as, as one movie, but going back now, thinking about this podcast, it is two movies structurally, you know, they're, they're they are, they do two very different things. Absolutely and I wonder, I, I haven't looked into what Tarantino said on any of it, but I wonder if he had to kind of restructure things because he can, you know, make it one movie. So he just kind of tried to make it two different movies or he just, he did a brilliant job, whatever they, whatever they did to make these two movies work. Like, you know, you know, it was probably all Tarantino with maybe some, you know, Weinstein massaging <laughs> um but uh yeah it's uh it's a full package and 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 I definitely am looking forward to hear why you think that about uh volume 2 so so strongly well so first of all uh, uh, something that matters a lot to me for Tarantino and maybe it's because he's contemporary and he's somebody I grew up with but the way he was received as his films were coming out is, is a big deal to me. Um, and it's less that's less so the case for other directors. And and I think it's not purely because it was contemporary, because, you know, like I remember when um, Scorsese movies were coming out, like when Casino came out and even Goodfellas and The Departed and other gangs in New York was kind of a big deal. But and David Lynch, um, other contemporaries of Tarantino's. Very, very little had any sort of a cultural impact that Tarantino's movies had. 
I mean, he was definitely the biggest. He was definitely the most popular. And when his movies came out, it was easily like the biggest deal of, of anybody's movies. People would talk about Christopher Nolan. I remember Memento was a big deal. Um, uh, Nicholas Reffin got a little bit of play. But uh, the thing about Tarantino is like whatever circle of friends I ran in, they were all like way into it. And it didn't matter who the person was, no matter what their style was, what subculture they ascribed to, if they were normie, if they were edgy, if they were artsy, if they were mainstream, jock, nerd, skater, hippie, all of them, all of them were way into all Tarantino's movies and Robert Rodriguez's movies as well. Sin City uh, was a huge deal. Kill Bill was a huge deal. Pulp Fiction was probably the biggest film event of my entire life, I would say, even to this day. Uh, I would I think Pulp Fiction probably weighs heaviest of any movie ever. I think it changed the industry. I think it defines an era. It started an era. And I think anybody who wants to be an auteur or indie or uh, artistic is following basically what he set out in Pulp Fiction um, and the only caveat to that, I will say, is David Lynch is the only other guy who's in his stratosphere. Um, I think I think Lynch is the better filmmaker. Actually, I haven't I'm not totally decided on that. I know that's probably controversial. Most people are probably instantly going to say Lynch, but I'm actually not totally convinced of that. Uh, what do you think? Where do you stand on that? That's a, if, that's if a I really, may. No, that's a really good question. And. Honestly, I'd, I would say it, it depends on what's your end point here with the audience. You know, if you're going for, if you're going for a mass culture, you know, pop culture, when you just got to go with Tarantino, I mean, how he speaks to the audience um, and entertains them and allows like, kids like me when I was young to just kind of sit back and enjoy and not have to think too hard. And still till this day, like, yeah, I can dissect it and pick it apart, but you're done with the movie and you're just happy. Like you got to live with these characters a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lynch, if I'm talking from a purist you know, perspective on what is cinema. I think he's the better filmmaker because he's not just drawing on like a lot of genres and tropes and all these things from film history that make it work like Tarantino. He's actually pulling in, I would say, archetypal structures from, you know, pun intended, the astral realm. Um, he's, he's fully, he's fully in tuned with, um, another realm, man. And like in many ways in the process, I, I think Tarantino is, um, but he's pulling from almost entirely like pop culture and, and niche subgenres within that pop culture. I'm totally loving this. That's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly right. Lynch is, is definitely going to get his own episode, but, uh, yeah, we're let's we'll save the the real heady analytics stuff for later. But just to to kind of hearken to where me and Spendo want this conversation to go, one of my favorite quotes about film is actually from Werner Herzog, who said something to the effect of, "You have to read if you're a filmmaker, uh, 
and a director, you have to read books because if you don't read, uh, you're just you're the only thing you have to draw on is other films, and then your movies become about other films, and it's not you know it doesn't it lacks depth if you do that. Yeah, Werner and, Werner gives the best advice on film. Sorry to cut you off. No, it's but fine. It's he's fine. he's he's the type of guy, and Tarantino's like this too. But like Werner will tell you, like you gotta you gotta work as a bouncer at a strip club. You know, you you got you got it. That's 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 where you want to to learn how to write. You you, you want to be a fly in the wall and listen and meet people. Um, but I really like what you said because what I always take from Werner is like you have to read and write furiously, like like you're in some type of manic like fugue state, frothing at the mouth. Like you have to you you have to one be inspired by by the books you're reading, you have to let yourself go. But two, when you're ready to write and you have a story that needs to get down on the page, don't sleep for three days. Yeah. You know, that that's the type of attitude he takes and he's right. You know, I can tell you preparing for this episode, my respect for Quentin Tarantino was increased greatly um, because he comes across... First of all, he kind of left a bad taste in my mouth because I feel like his his career just fell off a cliff at some point and he just made bad movie after bad movie at the end. But um, I'm already just going to tell everybody that we, we decided before we even started recording tonight that we have to have a follow-up episode because there's just so much to talk about with Tarantino. So we're going to talk about the later half of his career another time. Um, so it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And also because he's so poppy, like pop culture, and because it's so like candy and eye candy and just, you know, um, candy for the pop culture enthusiast, that it seems like he's doing really on the surface things, really surface things. But then when you read the, like the rationale and the thought process that he says went into these films, you see, he actually thinks very deeply about these things. And he puts a lot of thought into it, a lot of time, a lot of energy. And um, what you just said about the fuge state, as I'm, I'm sure you probably know. Um, so you were talking about the fuge state that, uh, you know, people need to go into. It's like it is it really is like an altered state of consciousness where you have to absolutely ac access the astral realm um, and access the subconscious and um, go into like a furious passion and let it take over you. And that's actually how he got Pulp Fiction figured out. That's actually how he hammered it into a screenplay that worked for one movie, because I guess him and Roger Avery had already come up with the concept. They had already written a bunch of the scenes. Uh, they had to put most of the movie together, but it wasn't a finished product that he was ready to sell. And um he knew that he needed to like hammer this out and make this into something he could shop around so he could get this movie made. So he took off to Amsterdam by himself. And he says that he wrote the movie like hold up in an apartment uh, uh, hotel room in Amsterdam, like smoking hash and, and writing furiously for three months and got the whole thing worked out. Um, So and he's probably chasing that dragon ever since. I can't imagine coming off coming off of Reservoir Dogs selling a couple scripts and then just going to Cannes and then fucking off to Amsterdam. Yeah. Like he had his whole life ahead of him. Um, That's, that's where you want to be if you're going to write something great in that, in that headspace. That, that's, that's the young hungry director who hasn't mm -hmm. gotten 
comfortable. He hasn't grown too aware of himself. And that's what one of the major problems, I think. And here's an interesting thought. That's one of the major problems that I thought happened to Quentin Tarantino. He became too much of his own like product. He became too self-aware. And the interesting thing is, when I went to see Kill Bill Volume 1 in the theater, he had already like become a parody of himself for me at that point. But now rewatching it because uh that movie I hadn't seen since it since I saw it in the theater and I just rewatched it for this episode. And I realized that like I was probably just kind of like over the Tarantino hype because I don't think it's in the movie. I don't think it's too self-aware. It is a little bit self-aware and there is a little bit of like grinning at the camera and there's some schlockiness to it that 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 happens in other of his movies as well this knowingness that like I'm Quentin Tarantino and this is how a Quentin Tarantino movie is done but that movie comes off like as so much fun that rewatching it it's kind of okay you kind of give him a pass for it and one of the reasons why Kill Bill Volume 2 is such a good movie to me is it doesn't have any of that it's much more serious uh, it's it's much less slapsticky and uh, it's much less schlocky and it's much less self-aware. And I think part of the reason I think that is that uh, Uma Thurman is really kind of hamming it up, especially for the first one. She's really kind of hamming it up and she's on display. Um, so she's really showing off for the camera. And, you know, I think she's a good looking woman, but I think she looks better in that movie. The first one that she's ever looked in her entire career. Um, and she, you know, she learned martial arts. She learned sword play. So I think there was an element of her kind of being a little cocky, which is fine. Um, but that movie plays very much like a comic book. The second movie has a lot of scenes with Michael Madsen, Daryl Hannah, and David Carradine. A lot more, so they take up a lot more screen time than uh, just Uma Thurman, as opposed to the first movie where it's like sh the spotlight's on her. So it gives the movie a much different vibe. Yeah, a much different vibe, especially like you know Uma Thurman is a lot younger than those actors, and she's not like a a freshman or. Um, you know, fresh new actress at this point. She, she'd been around for a while. She's a pro, but she wasn't like a dyed in the wool veteran. You know, I mean, Daryl Hannah was in Blade Runner. David Carradine was already a star by the 70s. And Michael Madsen just has the gravitas that no one else has really, except maybe Mickey Rourke. Um, so to put her, and this is why I love Kill Bill 2 so much, to put her in that ensemble it, it just works so well. And I felt like each actor got to shine like for who they are and what they can do. Even even Daryl Hannah in the second one is better than she was in the first one to me. She she was much more like cunning and um, uh, she seemed much more brooding and dangerous in the second one. In the first one, she kind of like, you know, she walks in, she's whistling, she's dressed like a nurse. She kind of whines at Bill when he says you not to kill her. Uh, but in the second one, she like sets the death at her trap and has a really awesome fight scene. That's the other thing. Uh, not to go on at too much of a length, but this is why this is my favorite of all of his movies. The fight scenes in Kill Bill 2 are better than the ones in Kill Bill 1 because... Beatrice is like just like a one woman killing machine, just tearing through everyone for the whole movie. And it's awesome 
but it's also like very comic booky, very cartoonish. Whereas her and Daryl Hannah are like evenly matched, you know, and um, the stakes are way higher. I mean, the villains are more capable in the second one than the first one. Uh, the dialogue is just delivered so perfectly and it's very serious. The dialogue is very serious, too. Um, I mean, I could go on and on, but the last thing I'll say is that the dialogue in the first one is very much like Uma Thurman is the narrator, which Quentin Tarantino loves doing. And I hate that. I don't, I don't like that device at all. Um, you know, looking at the camera and narrating. And she does it in the second one. But she's like telling the story throughout the first movie. And she doesn't do that as much in the second one. The second one is much more the story revealing itself through the dialogue. And they all just, I mean, every single person in this movie is at the top of their game. Yeah, the 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 more I'm hearing you break it down that way, the more obvious it's becoming to me that it was an intentional split here. Um, so if it's one movie, who knows what he would have done with the structure? I mean, look at look at Pulp Fiction. Like that shit is so out of order, but it just works. And these two movies, it's it's almost. Now that I'm thinking more about it, it's almost you have kind of this Kill Bill one is like this, this almost like female empowerment fantasy. Um, and it's great. And it's like it's 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 what he's doing is is similar to what he's doing in Pulp Fiction. But instead of with like just remixing the narrative, he's remixing film genre itself. Um and he he kind of comes out the gates, you know. You got that cutaway anime scene. Um, you have so much kung fu in that first first film that he's just throwing all the razzle dazzle like over the top stuff in the first one, and then it's almost it almost becomes Bill and Bud and Hattori Hanzo's story, or not Hattori Hanzo. Um, that's in the oh, first one, but uh, it, it yeah. shifts over into like uh Pi May, right? Like uh, yeah, Bill Bud Pi May, you kind of see the more the realities of who she's up against in the second one, and it becomes this more grounded. This is this is what it's gonna take to actually get revenge. Like you're gonna get fucked up by Bud and get buried six feet deep. Yeah, which is before, one of my you know, favorite. The first thirty minutes are over. That's one of my most favorite movie scenes of all time. Any movie, mm -hmm. I love when she just comes in swinging and he just. 12 gauges the shit out of her like dude. you think she's gonna be you think she's gonna go like oren ishii just like samurai sword like this bitch has got it it's like no nothing like a cowboy with a shotgun you know what i was thinking the the second time watching it is i was like uh i'm sitting there and she's writhing in pain and i know he's gonna bury her alive and all i'm thinking to myself is i'm like I know she's going to live through this because I've seen the movie and she's the star, but her beautiful breasts are ruined for life. I mean, there's no way they're not. <laughs> he shot her with a double barrel shotgun in you the dirty tits dog with rock salt <laughs> instead of buckshot. Yeah. Damn. And I'm Good. sitting there like they're ruined. <laughs> Good thing. She already had that baby, man. Uh, I know. It's oh, so it's it's not like she breastfed, anyways, so it doesn't matter. She was she was fully comatose. 
Yeah, she probably can't have kids anymore. I don't think there's any more kids on the way <laughs> after what they did to her. That's I what mean, happens when you take on a thousand Yakuza. Yeah, so that, that's another thing I wanted to say about Kill Bill 2, though, is there's so much backstory that's not really given to you in the first one. And everyone hates when the villain comes along and like tells the backstory and reveals the plan. It, it's like such a, a poor plot device. But it is delivered without a catch. It's delivered like perfectly well, seamlessly in this movie. I mean, do you agree when when David Carradine and her are sitting at the table having that conversation at the very end? It's that hackneyed old tried and true plot device where they explain the whole movie to you. But David Carradine is so good in this movie and it fits the plot so well that that is like what they would be talking about and it doesn't come across contrived the way he delivers it it's very rewarding to me i felt like totally like it gives you closure to everything that you just watched yeah it's just an instance of tarantino dunking on everyone like dude let's be honest he puts himself in these corners that like by all means you you shouldn't be able to write yourself out of yourself out of this, but he creates such rich characters that he knows, like personally knows on the paper that he he lets them write for him. You know, he goes into that state we were talking about earlier, and he'll he'll know he knows when it works because he doesn't see himself as the one really writing. You know, he'll 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 write it and then he'll, you know read it back to a friend or something. And then it's, it's just working. Cause he, 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 he knows these characters cause he's seen so many movies and he just knows what hits and, and like, not only what hits on a, on a story or like human level, but what hits on the big screen, which is, which he understands. That's a whole different thing than, than writing something small and personal. Very well said. I'm glad you said that. Um, and that's true, just so the listener understands what Spendo just said. Tarantino says these things. Like, this isn't just our take on it. Um, he talks about, like, getting to know the characters and living with the characters. And uh, he says that him... This is really interesting parallel. He says that him and uh, Uma Thurman came up with this character together back, like, during the Pulp Fiction days. But it was like very vague. It was like, oh, we're going to make a uh, a bride who was killed at the altar by her ex-lover, but she didn't die and she comes back to get revenge. And that was like basically all they came up with, like 10 years before the movie came out. And he says that like the reason why the movie comes across so good and that character comes across so well is because he had been living with her and Uma Thurman had been living with her for 10 years at that point. And the interesting parallel is that the funny thing is, is that the lore is that the mention of the five deadly vipers or the five deadly venoms or whatever from or no no it was fox force 5 in pulp fiction they mentioned fox force 5 so the 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 lore the wiki is that these uh five deadly vipers are the fox force 5 mentioned in pulp fiction which i guess turns out not to be true but it's interesting because it's like there's the parallel i mean the similarity is still there and um, so this movie is kind of in more ways than one an outgrowth of Pulp Fiction. 
and it's not a sequel and it's not necessarily in the same universe, but it's like the same Tarantino verse. And the interesting thing is that Mulholland Drive, uh, the story of uh, Naomi Watts's character, Betty, I think she had a couple names in that movie. Um, so I don't ever know which one to call her. So I'll just call her Naomi Watts. Her character was originally supposed to be a spinoff of Twin Peaks. And she was supposed to be a character from Twin Peaks that they then go on to tell the story of. But the story ended up taking on a life of its own, just like the Kill Bill thing did. Now, uh, I wanted to say a couple things here. You mentioned, um, well, the audience reaction. Uh, just another comparison I wanted to make is that Tarantino is apparently, I didn't know this, very concerned with how the audience responds. Now, this is very much like an older thing, right? Because now everything is like streaming and everything's DVD and everything is a, da a, a digital download on your own personal device. And the audience reaction, the visceral uh, in-person, in-the-flesh reaction that the audience has to the film is not as much of a concern to a filmmaker now as it is as it was then. And anybody who pays attention to directors knows that directors hate that. Directors really care about what the audience feels and how they react. And David Lynch talks about it all the time as well. Um, and I agree with you, by the way, uh, with what you were saying, like the feeling you get when you leave a Tarantino movie. He definitely cares. He wants you to laugh. He wants to play with you. He wants to play with your emotions. He wants to like tear you, uh, throw you about. But at the end of the day, he wants you to enjoy yourself and be entertained. Whereas uh, David Lynch, like, wants to abuse the shit out of you. And he wants to put you <laughs> through, through hell. And he wants you to feel the hell that his characters are going through. Um, now, while it's the polar opposite of Tarantino in a certain way, it's also the same thing, though. He is very concerned with how the audience sitting there in the theater mm -hmm. as a collective ex experience is is responding to their film. I don't know if you had anything more to say about like the audience interplay, but I know it's something we and you talked about before we uh, before we went live here. Yeah, um, Lynch Lynch films aren't for normies at all. <laughs> Tarantino films are, and they they both understand, I would say, at the best level you can, the intensities that their scenes bring to an audience member and a collective audience. And they they rearrange their narratives, not so much to do with the plot, but these intensities, right? And that's why you see Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill. These movies start out with a fucking bang. Um, he 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 wants he wants to give you that ebb and flow that's gonna that's gonna put you into like a heightened state and keep you entertained throughout the full you know hour and a half, two and a half hours. Um, so when like Tarantino, when you leave the theater, you're just kind of happy. And like, put a gun to my head. I could not tell you the order of scenes that Pulp Fiction happens in. Like, could you? Like, it's all just, it's it's all a mismatch that works perfectly. It's so fun to watch. 
and you can go back to it. I mean, Kill Bill, you can kind of follow a little more. Yeah, like Mulholland Drive, like what the fuck? How, how am I supposed to like think back and be like, this happens, this happens, this happens? It's all, it's all this, you know. It's just this this orchestral like combination of just like emotion and space and color and light and character and um it's fun man it's it's fun to to if, especially watch in an audience uh setting um because that's that's what these two directors are are doing but also you know maybe we'll get into this later but they they saw what the tv was was becoming and 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 how they could kind of morph into into that setting yeah it's absolutely true it's absolutely true and i like what you're saying about like you said you can't tell you the order of scenes of pulp fiction and you can't really tell you the order of scenes of maholland drive i agree with that completely and the i think that those movies are are basically masterpieces each one um i still like kill bill 2 better than pulp fiction but you can't deny that pulp fiction is like a seamless masterpiece um and i have so much to say about this but i guess directly in response to what you're saying is one of the reasons why i would call pulp fiction a masterpiece is because even though it's the normal runtime of a normal movie and it's got three or four movies in it, like chopped up. And that's what Tarantino says. He says something to the effect of it was three movies. Then there ended up being a fourth movie in there. Um, and we should probably distinguish what's what. But, but before we do that, I wanted to say that the Marcellus Wallace plot and everything going on with him, uh, Vince Vega, and I forgot Samuel L. Jackson's character's name. Jules. Jules, thank you. In your memory, that you retain the memory of that as its own movie. Yeah. And everything with Butch, uh, Bruce Willis, and everything going on with him, you retain that as its own separate movie. But they're actually like tightly interspersed. And I think that like would be very difficult to to pull off because it's not a series of vignettes. It's not a bunch of like clips placed adjacent to each other it's a seamless movie that um and and it is like the definition of what postmodernism is he's let's, let's couch that for later but but that's yeah i not mean you, how the, the average traditional movie was made at all and he pulls it off flawlessly go ahead sorry yeah yeah no worries that was that was very well said and i think like breaking it down you got vincent and jules total movie you know y you can even imagine like what jules is up to you know after now that now that vincent's dead he got his wallet back like he's probably he's probably kicking it in hermosa or something just fucking chilling out for a bit um then you have you have vincent and mia wallace that's a that's a whole nother movie right there um, and that, you know, that's milking one character, two movies. That's like not, not easy to do. And then like the diner stuff is kind of in, intertwined with, with Vincent or no, just Jules actually. Cause, cause Vincent's like, oh no, Vincent's there. That's right. 
see what's happening with the the no i don't remember vincent being there he is there he's in Uh, in the fucking bathroom dude oh he he comes out and shit's going down okay okay see i thought that (laughs) happened chronologically after vincent already got killed yeah, no, they're there, and he goes to yeah. the bathroom when shit goes down. He's, well, he's taking see, a he's taking a heroin dookie. Spendo, Spendo's already vindicated, <laughs> vindicated, because I totally flipped that in my mind somehow. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, and then so like that whole thing, like the, those two showing up at the diner. I mean, you already know Tarantino has like those characters. He can he can go on and on with and they're probably like just different versions of what's going on in true romance and uh natural born killers right like he he has he has that that dog in him to tell that that uh bonnie and clyde story but to a modern audience um and then like you said bruce willis and and marcellus wallace is a completely different movie and and it, it just all works and i think it's because of these intensities that he understands um and he's 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 never gonna shoot he's never gonna call a scene a scene or a a mini story within a bigger story uh a day or call it raps until like everything is on the page and it just feels like you know it's bookended within that within that subplot or within that scene it's just it's just like okay this this works as as its own thing um and like <clears throat> excuse me i i think a, a lot of those like you say vignettes and right when you said that i i immediately went to one of his influences which is uh godar and okay. this is kind of where i didn't know this this is kind of where I lose Godard a lot of times. Um, and a lot of audience members do is like his vignettes next to each other kind of feel like they're for the sake of vignettes, um, which is, which is, you know, admirable in its own, because a lot of times you play back, you know, memories of a time with someone or, or a narrative and it's just a series of vignettes. So it works. But what Tarantino is doing is he's putting, not only the audience, but himself in the audience. He he wants to see himself as a kid or as a teenager coming out of that movie being like, wow, that was fucking badass. Like, I am glad I spent whatever, you know, I did on that movie. I'm probably going to see it again, maybe two or three times. Um, that That's what he wants. And he, 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 he doesn't, he doesn't care if you piece the narrative together. He just wants you to have a good time. That's awesome that you said that because, um, dude, I was like 15 or 16 when Pulp Fiction came out and everybody was into movies, but we were coming out of the 80s and um, the early 90s and it was like Jurassic Park and uh, I think the movie Bruce Willis did right before this was uh, The Last Boy Scout and, um, you know, Stallone was still huge, Arnold T2 and True Lies was around in that time, right? So we were like young guys just getting into high school uh, into these big blockbuster movies and then everybody was going to see uh pulp fiction and a, and a really big deal back then that nobody can like if you weren't around then for movies like it this doesn't happen anymore but pulp fiction stayed in the theater for like a year and a half which was a huge deal it was like very few movies in my whole lifetime stayed in the theater for that long it was usually just a couple month run. Now the movies are there for a couple weeks and you like you don't they're so ephemeral because they want to rush it out to, you know, the internet and streaming so fast. So people were going to see 
Pulp Fiction over and over again. And nobody, people who were so used to watching these normal uh, cookie cutter, big box movies, none of them were like thrown sideways by the 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 nonlinear plot. Nobody was like, this movie didn't make any sense. This movie was all out of whack. Like everybody got it. Everybody was able to like follow along and audiences were captivated, which is really saying a lot. I mean, the more I talk about this, the more I'm remembering that Quentin Tarantino was like the darling of the film industry at the time. He was like the biggest deal. Yeah. He he had the amount of clout to like his Reservoir Dogs project where he didn't have to agree to have someone like rewrite anything dude and that know? reminds me like nobody had heard of reservoir dogs I, I i had seen true romance had no idea he wrote it didn't know who he was uh i had seen natural born killers everybody had seen that nobody really knew who he was but uh pulp fiction like everyone started like going back to his older movies and reservoir dogs got like put back in the theater and I yeah. saw Reservoir Dogs in the theater in like 1997, which was like totally unprecedented. That and in the 90s, that like never happens. Yeah, it's man. the only movie I know like of that, you'll, that, that what happened you'll, with. You'll get is some classic like Technicolor print in LA or New York, um, Wizard of Oz or something like, you know, Rio Bravo or some epic like yeah. And I'm not Sergio saying it was Leone like movie, but top, like top build like run it was like in one theater for like you know one but weekend still, it was like but that movie that movie came out five years ago that never yeah, happens exactly like, you right don't, exactly. You don't rerun a movie after exactly five years. exactly like that that's that's rare and like they basically just said we got to run this shit back and he's gonna make a lot of money we're all gonna make a lot of money like why not and so Good. I'm now, I'm now glad I, they did because a lot of people, you know, before that it was only people at Sundance and and a couple film festivals in Europe, I think that got to see it in the theater. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Um, I just had to double check. I think I remember Natural Born Killers coming out before Pulp Fiction. I don't know if I'm right about that though, because I know Ooh. I know I saw Natural Born I've, Killers first. And I had no idea who Tarantino was. I had no idea it was a Tarantino movie. It didn't mean anything to me at the time. So I didn't there's know a, about Pulp Fiction yet. It's like not a, possible to not know who Tarantino was. Um, here, there's a, this interview book. There's a timeline, right? No, I got it right here. Oh, you got it? Right it? Okay. Um, so what was it? Was it? I'm well, pretty sure it's... Yeah, you know what? It looks like Pulp Fiction same, came out two months after Natural Born Killers. Yeah. I, I thought they were right around the same yeah, time. Yeah, but I have to say, though, I did not see Pulp Fiction until it had been out for, like, a year. And I just kept hearing about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I did love it the first time. And actually, I actually started to, like, dislike it over time, but probably partially because there was just so much hype and I had seen it so many times. Um that's so interesting. You, That's how you... I feel about Kill Bill. Okay, that makes sense. But like coming back to it, it's great. But like, I can, I, I didn't even like have much of a desire to rewatch it because I just know that movie like in my head so well. Yeah, right. right Whereas right. Pulp Fiction, I come back to and I'm just like, okay, this is 
this is this is fucking special. Yeah, it's definitely special. <laughs> Cuz it just feels it feels a little new do, every do you time. I think uh are there people out there who is this normal to like Reservoir Dogs better than Pulp Fiction? Cuz I think I like Reservoir Dogs better than Pulp Fiction. Is that a thing? I'd say that's that's normal. I mean, it's a taste thing. I mean, but I mean, are, are there uh, I'm a little skeptical because a, a lot of those people I feel like are just making the hipster comment about oh, it. Oh, really? You know? Really? But I could see, I could see how it's backed up. I mean, there's, there's just a there's a rawness that comes to that low budget of a film, and and he was in a really he was set up perfectly for a for a good like a for that feature because he thought he was going to shoot it for super low budget, like his own money, maybe some help from like a family friend or something and just get it done. And I think his producer buddy was the one who convinced him to like, no, we give me, give me a few months. I'm going to get it right. Let's get some money. And then like all of a sudden they have half a million dollars. All of a sudden they have, you know, a mill. And then it's like their shooting budget, I think was a million and a half. Um, and then right before shooting, he got to go to the Sundance labs, the Sundance Institute and try out some scenes like with the cameras, with the production designer, with a couple actors, right when he was supposed to start shooting that he got to put it on pause and like go to fucking Utah with Robert and Robert Redford's ranch and just like explore some last ideas. Um, and like, Two in and he had before that he had two weeks to rehearse with the actors, no cameras, no lights, anything. And like if there's any any producers listening to this, like that's what you have to do. Um, to like make characters come to life. Like they have to live with each other for like like minimum two weeks. And and that's expensive and costs money, but it's worth it, you know. Um, I don't know how how who knows how how much different that would have turned out if if tarantino just went straight into production minimal rehearsals no sundance lab and just was a ball of fucking stress torqued up on on caffeine or whatever and just like figured it out he he it, was he was set up well to, it's to possible do what he that did it saved the movie then what you're saying possible i mean it's 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 I mean, it's one of those things like everything happens for a reason. Like he's Tarantino. He is like, he is what he, it is what he is. But I think what's let's, let's just talk about what's going for that movie different from Pulp Fiction is it's like, it's supposed to take place in one location. So everything's like all the tension, all the dialogue, everything that goes on plot wise, is supposed to happen in that, you know, warehouse. And so, the the budget stuff that comes in is is um getting these big name actors it's letting this story kind of bleed out into the city streets and those car chase scenes the bank robbery um and just giving it that extra little punch it needed so when i hear you say you like it more i think you just like a more you know a tighter story with with doing the minimum it needs to do to like be really really effective you know, and there's no, there's no shame in that, man. Yeah, especially I like, as I like someone who's never done a feature. Like, I love people who love love those smaller films that work. You know, I like that it's raw and rough around the edges, and I like that um, you can tell that like Tim Roth and Steve Buscemi are like 
just acting their fucking hearts out because they, you know, they were brand new. Uh, Michael Madsen did his thing in that. And that's the first time, you know, anybody, anybody my age anyway, ever saw him and everyone loved him. Uh, Harvey, Harvey Keitel was a big deal. Everyone knew who he was. So seeing him in there, it like, it just fit so perfectly. Like I was saying about Kill Bill 2 being like an ensemble cast and the way they all play off each other. I mean, he gets that camaraderie. Like, I don't know what he does differently. I mean, you're talking about the people spending two weeks together. Um, I don't know if he like <laughs> takes his crew out and takes his uh, his stars out to lunch or dinner or coffee or something to get them all talking. But the 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 interplay between like the interpersonality relationships between the people in his movies is like, Almost almost like no other. And uh, just the way Michael Madsen and Harvey Keitel compliment each other in that movie. But then uh, Tim Roth and Steve Buscemi are both pretty frenetic and pretty high energy. It's like juxtaposed with the, the chill kind of subdued uh, performance of the other guys. But he's, anyway, just, he's just a, he's just a man's director, man. Like yeah, he, right he he knows how dudes talk, especially on right screen. On. And like that's where he's flexing in that movie, you know. Right on. Yeah, and, and people know this, but I know Harvey Keitel. Some, he says in an interview, someone showed Harvey Keitel the script. And I forgot who that person was. But I remember him like thanking that person because he said that Harvey Keitel is the one who made all this stuff happen for him. I think he's the reason they went out to the, the, the ranch in Utah and did all that stuff you're talking about. Is he made a lot of that happen. So I think, I think the reason you like... Uh... Reservoir Dogs Astral is there's 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 like zero females in it and the only <laughs> one that is gets shot in the face. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, let's go. Nicotined up. Yeah, I don't even smoke any cocoa. <laughs> but um, you know, since we were talking about Reservoir Dogs, let's just make a quick mention for um, let's just make a couple comments about True Romance and uh, Natural Born Killers before we get back to um, Pulp Fiction, because. Those movies were written by him, but directed by others, Tony Scott and uh, Oliver Stone. And I notice, like, there's a big difference between those movies and what Tarantino does, and that his touch and his eye and his style as a director is very idiosyncratic and very unique. And I often go back and forth wondering what those movies would have been like if Tarantino directed them and if they would have been better or if they're better the way they are. And even though I do think Oliver Stone butchered a lot of things with Natural Born Killers, I sometimes think I'm glad that those two guys directed those two movies. Yeah, I mean, Natural Born Killers, it's almost not even worth discussing because... Who knows with the amount of rewrites that thing went through and, you know, it's, it's, I think it's just such a bitter pill for Tarantino that I don't, I don't really, I don't really know what to say about that one, but I can comment on true romance. And while it was probably good for Tarantino to see his script and his world, especially a world that was so like personal to him. Um, I mean, he wrote that about himself. He's not hiding that from anyone. I mean, he was working at the, like a video store or whatever, having, having these fantasies about probably chicks who walked in there. Right. Like, like any dude at his age would, um, so I think it was valuable for him to see like an industry standard, like pretty, pretty solid professional director, like take his world and, and spit it back out through the machine. Right. Um, with that being said, like his writing and his, 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 the way he writes dialogue and violence is so unmistakably Tarantino that, yeah, that Tony Scott couldn't cover it up. Right. And I just think like, I I think back on some, some shots in Reservoir Dogs where like, because he was one limited by budget and time, but two, like he just knew he had it in the can with some of these long takes. Like you don't know how he's, how he's gonna frame those scenes. And I think in my heart, I know True Romance would have been a much better film, man. You like, think it, so? it was You're cool. Convinced? Yeah, I'm convinced, dude. There's just there's just so many shots. Like when I when I look back at like Reservoir Dogs, for instance, like most people wouldn't notice, but like Steve Buscemi will go down that long hall into the bathroom and just start fucking raging about something, and he just he just lets Steve Buscemi disappear into the bathroom stall and come back and and the rest is up to the imagination tony scott is going to get in there with a tight shot show you everything it's like there's just a certain like 
gut feeling Tarantino goes with these. Like, I know, I know this is going to play, this shot's going to play better. He's not even thinking this, but like, if we're going to break it down logically, it's like this shot's going to play better to the audience and left up to their imaginations. He's just going with his gut. And it's like, it's, it's working a lot of the time. Like he, he rarely misses when he kind of goes out of pocket with some of those, those weirder takes and especially the longer takes like they, have you ever seen a long Tarantino take that left you bored or wanting more, you know? It's moments like this that I'm like, I know that you've gone to film school and I know that you have experience directing because these are the insights that like put words to things that I intuit or somehow graspingly notice but can't enunciate. This is this is I'm really glad you said this because there's a scene in Pulp Fiction that has always been very important to me. And I've always thought of it as a as a mark for why Quentin Tarantino is different and better than other directors. And the scene, I now finally understand it. There's a scene where Butch uh, is walking. I can't remember. He's leaving one place and going, I think, back to his apartment. I don't know if you remember this scene, but he's just walking through L.A. and the camera's just following him. And he like walks across a bunch of empty lots and a couple backyards with like a raggedy chain link fence and overgrown grass. Do you remember this scene? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just remember like the first time I saw that in the theater and every time I've probably seen that movie 10 times. I always remember like no one but Quentin Tarantino would put the scene in here. No one but Quentin Tarantino would have him walk by these like ratty old backyards unkempt backyards because every other director would try to like stylize it and they would try to make it look like hollywood you know but and, and look clean and flashy but tarantino is giving you the gritty reality of the neighborhoods that these guys are going through and like the pawn shop and that like i don't know what district of la that's in but you could see all the storefronts and, you know, it's obvious that they went into a real pawn shop. You know what I mean? It wasn't a set. I mean, you've talked about this. Most of that movie wasn't like elaborately constructed sets. So they're really in the neighborhoods of L.A. And it gives you this gritty feeling. And and he's, you know, Tarantino was making noir films, especially Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. But they're they're a very distinct, like not overly stylized noir that only he does. And, you know, he had the budget in Pulp Fiction and he still chose to do these things. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would I wouldn't even call them noir. I would call them just like gangster crime films, man. Like, well, it's an update of the noir genre, I guess I should say. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 debatable. I don't I don't I, I would be interested to see how he would pin them. But um, to your to your point, like. Quentin's done that walk before, dude. He's had to hop a few fences to get back into yeah, like, right that, on, that apartment in, yeah. in in central LA before. Um 100% and like taking it back to what I imagine someone like Tony Scott would do, like they would make an exterior shot look real pretty, you know, nice badass like pulling up on the motorcycle or ru running into frame. But no, there, he's not going to go through the fucking dirty lot next door that probably wasn't even one of their permitted locations for the film, you know, just because like that's what 
character he thinks would do because like let's be honest like like tarantino like lived in la like he he he, he was a little he was a little punk running around he those was a little so uh, like, la street rat in the 70s and exactly and like those textures i don't even i don't need i doubt it was scripted dude I I'm, I bet they had a location and he's kind of in the back of his mind. He knows there's this dirt lot next to the location and he's seeing the textures and he's just ready to wing it when the time comes. Um, and, you know, maybe he told him like, this is how I want to shoot it. And they permitted it and everything. But if I, if I recall, like, it's not a, it's not a super steady, like perfect dolly. Like, Absolutely. Shot. It's, it's totally. like, it's like handheld and you're just kind of like following him. Yeah. It's uh it's real dude. And that's when kind of the, you know, that's where I go back to Tarantino and I'm like, this guy, as much as like I can pick apart his work, like he is truly like one of the few who, who follows his gut regularly and rarely misses rarely. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't think he misses really ever until later in his career. But uh, and and that I would say is more from a perspective of like almost like how he wants his career to be re- perceived from like a total, you know, package where it's like even within his films, the directing, like even in these later ones you might not like, I would still argue the choices he makes within the scenes are spot on for the most part. Yeah. Like he's one of the few that just rarely misses like within a scene. I'm, I'm, I'm wishing for more, you know, and, and, and I, he's one of the goats because of it. I mean, even, uh, I don't really want to get into these movies until the next episode, but uh, even in movies that I don't necessarily like overall as movies, like Inglorious Bastards and um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, what you just said is absolutely true. Those movies, I mean, scene by scene, yeah, that he he pulls that off for sure. Like as scenes, uh, his scenes are like flawlessly executed. I just don't think the whole picture uh, really comes to a to a whole like the other ones we're talking about. But let's couch that mm-hmm. uh, to get back to Pulp Fiction. I think part of the reason why I didn't respond so well to the first Kill Bill. And I was actually lukewarm on Jackie Brown as well. I saw all these movies in the theater. Um, I think part of the reason I didn't respond so well to Kill Bill the first time I saw it is because I was coming off of um, the freshness of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction being so gritty and being so, um, I don't even know what the word is, just from the gut. And unpolished, I guess. I was gonna say like janky and sketchy, but that makes it sound like I think unpol unpolished is a good word. It's probably a better and word. like yeah. a, a word like antithetical to that. Like you might be seeing in his later films, like them being overproduced. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that. And and Kill Bill was the first Tarantino movie that I thought was overproduced, and it didn't really have any of those scenes that I'm talking about or that you're talking about with like you know, Steve Buscemi raging in the, in the bathroom stall that you don't get to see. He didn't have any of that in the movie. And that's kind of like what I was looking for, but luckily I was able to, um, I actually think I've seen it three times 
and it was only the first viewing that I didn't like. Although I should I should specify, I mean, there are things about it that are awesome now that I thought were awesome then. Like the scene where she, the whole Oren Ishii story, honestly, that whole thing, the, the crazy 88, I loved all that the first time as well. Um, uh, her in the yellow jumpsuit on the motorcycle is pretty badass. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read um, Sin City, the whole series, the Sin City comics. I haven't. Because um, Robert Rodriguez was kind of like right there with Tarantino. They, obviously, they worked together. They really appreciated each other's movies and they were feeding off each other. They did. Um, I almost called it I almost called the Art of Darkness because of my uh, buddies <laughs> who, who come on the show. Um from dust till dawn yeah i was crazy about that movie man i went crazy for that movie because i'm a huge like army of darkness evil dead night of the living dead all those zombie movies dawn of the dead loved all those quentin tarantino has had lots of really good things to say about dawn of the dead throughout his career he's mentioned that movie i mean it's in his uh he mentions it in cinema speculation the book that came out uh that kind of occasioned this podcast episode we both got the book and read through part of it yeah yeah and uh we'll get back to that a little later in the episode but he he mentions dawn of the dead and that so as me, for me to be a big fan of those movies already and then to be, become a quentin tarantino fan to then watch uh him and robert rodriguez do uh from dust till dawn i mean i just went crazy for that movie yeah that movie is very meta like i mean all, all their movies are but this one is like the perfect uh like neapolitan shake of of their two voices that they just had fun with man and george like, clooney was great in it and then like the selma hayek moment like oh, they, they just smashed it and I, I i think it's it's funny like i'm not a huge robert rodriguez fan like but i feel like I would I would like hanging out with him and talking movies with him more than I would with Tarantino, but I like Tarantino's movies like way more. They're way better. They're, They're way just better. way better. There's something about Robert Rodriguez that like I mean you see it in in From Dust Till Dawn like it's no accident that when Tarantino's character dies it becomes like a fully blown Robert Rodriguez film right like yeah. they planned that to go full meta with it and like it was. I'd argue Tarantino, like Rodriguez, let the script like be directed by Tarantino, like through through just the writing alone up until the point where Tarantino died in the film, and then and then he gets to have his fun. Like reminds me of uh, vintage Peter Jackson, that brain dead, you know, just Dude. full carnage, full carnage, just like let's see what we can do to just like have fun on set and while I love that's that cool, you just name dropped that movie i i <laughs> loved that movie in the 90s it wasn't called brain dead though it's called dead alive i think right yeah yeah. but i yeah. think they're the same movie they're the, same, the movie. same movie yeah yeah i think it's a originally in the uk releases dead alive and then it came to the states as brain dead oh I'm okay not mistaken. okay yeah no you, that was that was an apt comparison i i, I love that movie as well people don't know that like I mean, Peter Jackson has his name because Lord of the Rings and like, obviously, but like <laughs> he did this, one of the craziest movies, uh, almost its own genre of just like 
gore porn um to the level it just it feels like rated r uh nickelodeon slime (laughs) it's crazy that's a really good way to characterize it that's a really good way to characterize it man i gotta say like being a kid of the 90s like um we would always go to the video store you know Mm -hmm. and you had to be over what's wait what's that i'm just kidding exactly exactly (laughs) the vhs store you had to be uh a certain age to rent rated r movies you had to be like i think it was 17 or 18 maybe and so the movie store that we went to near my house it was like right down the street i could walk there uh i would go there i would walk there all the time and rent movies and um they got to know me and they started to like let me rent uh rated r movies when i was like 14 or 15 nice but but i had been going there for years with my parents and while they were like picking out the movie i would sneak back to the horror section or the rated x section which was like really hard to do though like because it was a separate room and this is what it was like before the internet people have no idea how hard we had it dude um, you'd have to like duck or how in. good or how good we had it. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You had to duck into the porn section and then duck out really fast. So you could only just like, just, like get a glimpse of like the, the horror really. <laughs> <it was> just... <laughs> but anyway, my point is I would go to the horror section and I would just like look at the pictures because I couldn't watch the movies. My parents wouldn't rent them for me. So I'd have to look at the pictures on the box of like the gore. And um, I remember, like, I would go through all of them and look at all the different pictures and read the descriptions. And I, like, picked out, like, when I can finally rent one of these movies, which one's it going to be? And I picked out Dead Alive. And no one had heard of it. No one knew what that was. It wasn't popular. And then finally, uh, when the lady, I remember the lady, she was like an old, you know, chain smoker who would smoke in the movie place. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Uh, I brought the movie up to her and she rented it to me and it was like a big moment in my life. And I thought me and my friends were going to go home and watch like we, we thought it was going to scare the shit out of us. And we thought it was going to be like the most violent thing we ever saw. And it was just this hilarious slapstick movie. And it definitely like changed our taste in movies. I mean, we just tore through uh, de- um, Evil Dead after that, Army of Darkness, um, and then all the zombie movies I mentioned earlier. So there was like a straight line from that moment to From Dust Till Dawn for me. And, you know, that kind of thing, like, uh, it it makes it makes you feel like a certain camaraderie with the director. You're like, this guy understands me, and he understands me and my friends. I mean, dude, Christian Slater's character in True Romance, he's like the proto-incel. I mean, he really yeah. was an incel. Before it was even a thing, <laughs> yeah, man. Dude. I, I rewatched it this year and I just couldn't shake I that word was in my mind the whole movie. You know, this is uh this is an this is an incel fever dream, 110 degree Fahrenheit fever, just just tr- ripping off his clothes in his sleep, like and it's 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 really it's really good. You know, it's, it's just, I think this, this phenomenon of the lone, the lone male that's just kind of sexually frustrated is just kind of exponentially expanded through, throughout the culture, you know? So it's, 
I don't know why it's not watched, like talked about more. You yeah, know, online. Yeah. I feel it should like be. It, it should be because it is. If Tarantino directed it, it would it would be for sure. Probably, but. yeah, probably. It's a great movie. Uh, the soundtrack is awesome. Patricia Arquette is great in it. Uh, I keep. It's so hard to talk about Tarantino without. She's such up. a cutie. She's such a cutie in that movie. Yeah, she's great in it. Uh, it's so hard not to bring up Lynch because Arquette was also in Lost Highway, which I saw back in the day, and it like totally lost me that movie. Uh, but then I rewatched it. Now it's one of my favorite David Lynch movies. But but we'll save that. Um, all right. So Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill. So 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 Kill Bill had has a very it, it's got a sheen to it. It's very shiny. It's very Hollywood. It's very uh, high production value. Um, it's very. It's a very self-aware movie. Uh, whereas Pulp Fiction still had the grittiness to it. And an interesting uh, trivia that I mean, so so the movie's all chopped up like that, right? And I think the midwit understanding of that movie is that like, oh, he's trying to do something uh, different. He's trying to do he's trying to be clever. He's trying to be tricky. He's trying to do something new. And he's he's doesn't have the chops to be like the great writer or the great director. So he has to rely on this uh, this novelty trick to like make his movie different and make his movie stand out. This is what the press was saying at the time as well. Were they saying that a lot? A lot of the negative press he got was you're not you're not making real films. You're just making films about films. Plus what you were saying, like you're just, you're just doing a, a trope or something. Okay. That makes so much sense to me. I didn't know that, but that is the, like the criticism people give for postmodernism. That's why postmodernism has such a bad name. And that's why it's so hard for me to like, even say postmodernism without cringing and knowing that the, the audience is going to cringe because postmodernism pop art like at its worst at its like worst eye candy is just uh it's just uh devices or tricks or a, an attempt to be showy in a new way and kind of be incoherent and we're like uh, self-aware camp you know super self-aware camp yeah yeah uh which which i which i think bill kill bill suffers from a little bit um yeah i don't think pulp fiction suffers from that no, not at all. But um, that's the criticism of 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 uh, uh, postmodern art. The criticism is it's like vacuous. It's very surface level, and a lot of it is true, especially like abstract expressionism and, and modernism, and painting and stuff. Uh, so Quentin Tarantino gets that criticism leveled at him. But when you find out why he put the movie the way he did, it's actually, in my opinion, it's brilliant because he he says a couple things in in this interview. So I know you read some of the same interviews as me. So I, let me know if this rings a bell. I'm not sure if this is one of the ones you read, but he was talking about how he didn't have the money uh, when he was first started to like decide to shop around the movie. Uh, I think he, he had already had the script. I know he wrote the script for True Romance in 87. And he wrote the script for um, Reservoir Dogs. I don't know when he wrote Kill, uh, uh, excuse me, Natural Born Killers. But I do know that Pulp Fiction was kind of like a scattered work between, like I was saying before, him and Roger Avery. And it wasn't like a completed piece yet. 
and he didn't quite have a product yet. And he didn't, he hadn't made it big yet. He didn't have any money yet. So he didn't know this must've been 91, 92, 90 even. He didn't know how he was going to shop it around to get funding. And he had heard that Jim Jarmusch in the eighties for one of his first movies, I think it was night on earth. Uh, instead of like making the whole movie and then trying to get it financed or writing the whole script and then trying to get it financed to make it, um, excuse me, tr making the whole movie and then get it distributed because that's how the indie movies work, right? Yeah. You make you make it on a low budget, then you have a studio distribute it more or less. Is that how? Yeah, you get to a film festival and then best exactly. case scenario, you, you get in a bidding war between like people trying to exhibit your movie and do like best case international sales with it. So that's exactly right. And according to Tarantino, this is how Jim Jarmusch got his start. He didn't have the money to make a full feature length movie. So he just made one short, got it into Kane somehow. People liked it and they ended up funding him to make it into a whole movie. And that whole movie ended up being a series of vignettes. So Tarantino thought to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll do the same thing Jim Jarmusch did. I could get a, a small vignette filmed and then I'll shop it around. And he said, maybe I can even get several vignettes filmed uh, for cheap each, shop those around, and then I can put them all together into a movie. So you can already see this is the inception of Pulp Fiction, the chopped up, nonlinear, several different movies in one. And according to him, uh, the first thing he had in mind was uh, what if... The boss has to go away. The mob boss has to go away on a job. And one of his hitmen, he says, hey, here's, you know, here's a grand. Go out and entertain my wife for the night while I'm out of town. And he trusts the hitman, but the wife tries to get freaky with him. And they, they do a little, the whole foot fetish thing. I forgot exactly what it was. Uh, does he actually give her a foot massage or they just talk about it? I can't remember now. They just talk about it. They just talk about it. Okay. I th it, but like, there's a, there's a moment after the diner dance scene where you think it's going to happen. And yeah. then it's the, he, he goes to the bathroom to uh, listen to the angel or devil on his shoulder. Right. And by the time he comes back, th th this is what he does is he plays with your expectations, right? She's right. overdosing on heroin. Yeah. You know, and, and he's, he's setting up all these tropes just so he can do a, do a nice fun like just fuck with the audience you yeah know? and he's explicit about that he says he mm -hmm. likes to subvert their expectations and he likes to jerk them around and <laughs> you know dash their hopes um but either way anyway the the, uh, the point i was trying to make was that the original plan was to make this short film and i just remember he, I, I bring it up though because i remember in the interview he mentions like the foot fetish thing was originally conceived of in the original short film that he was going to make yeah, so I I've I've looked at this and I think the the best explanation is like yeah, you're right about him having he, he was just he was a young guy and just wanted to get something in a film festival, man. And he he wanted to make a feature film, but he knows how fucking tough that is, especially if you don't have like an uncle that's an executive producer, you know, and he didn't, he just knew movies. And so he saw that method, but also there's the blood simple method, which is pretty 
Pheasant's pretty well good. known around the industry. The Blood Simple Coen Method is, 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 is what the Coen brothers did. Um, and that's, they basically like pitched around to like independently wealthy, just like normal people, like doctors, lawyers, whoever they knew. Um, but what they did was kind of genius. They, they put together the, the feature film trailer. So I think they, they, they scrounged together on their own, something like $20,000 shot every scene that they knew would be in the, the the trailer and then kind of put together this trailer and then went around to a bunch of different people and said, Hey, we only need like 10 K more to finish this movie. Do you want to be an investor? You know, stack that up 20, 25 times. You got an extra quarter million dollars to go finish your movie when you only had something like 10 minutes of it shot. Um, Tarantino, on the other hand, he he was playing between these two ideas of doing that, but he, it sounds like to me from his interviews, he just wanted to do like, a short film of one of the like ideas that ended up being Pulp Fiction. And then maybe the next year he would do another and then another and then another. And then by the time it was all done, he had these, you know, five shorts shot for $20,000 that it's like, Oh, now it's an anthology. And it's like, it's a feature film and I can put it together wherever I want. Well, he had it written, but he didn't have it made. Um, Pulp Fiction, he actually didn't have written until after Reservoir Dogs. He just had the idea like in there of what he wanted to do. And then after Reservoir Dogs popped off and he kind of gave up on this like anthology idea is when he's like, okay, I need to do Pulp Fiction. But he he went into it with the mindset of like, what worked for Reservoir Dogs was like he was trying to build the narrative like something that works for like a novel, right? Which is like you're just telling like you're telling the story um, in whatever way you think works best. You're just living with the characters. And like I talked about, like the intensities of what's going on earlier. So like he built Pulp Fiction finally after like like we talked about, he went to Amsterdam and he finally had time to like sit down with it and just like fully like you could see a sliver of what he was trying to do in reservoir dogs but almost make that like the entire like style of the movie was was playing with the narrative to the point where it didn't matter anymore if that makes sense like well it does but i guess the thing the point i was trying to make is that in order to take all these different stories and these different because he talks about it i mean it's called pulp fiction because he's basing it on the pulp Mm -hmm. fiction like noir crime novels and you can't you know he he says like to to take the 10 different stories or the four different novellas that were in one compendium or one uh pulp fiction novel which isn't one long story it's four different stories um to turn that into a movie would be way too long so he had to chop them up and layer them over each other to put them all in there. Because one of the things he said is that he wanted to really tell the story of Butch. I think his name was Butch the Boxer. And he wanted to really tell the story of Marcellus Wallace. And he wanted to really tell the story of Vince Vega. But he couldn't dedicate the whole thing to one of those guys. So if he if he overlapped it this way, he was able to take what would have been a series of vignettes and turn them into one whole package. And I think he pulls it off. Um, so, so at no point 
was he really trying to do or be what those people, what his critics accuse him of trying to be or do? He wasn't trying to be clever. He wasn't trying to uh, to be tricky or 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 like um, kind of make up for his lack of ability to write with some sort of novelty, which is what you know the the, the whole problem with postmodern art is. You don't have the talent, so you make up for it with novelty, and that's what he gets accused of. And he. I just think he's plainly not doing that with this movie. He almost leaned into the criticism and did it to prove them wrong. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything you're saying I'm doing and make it the most entertaining shit that this nineties audience has seen, you know, he had a chip on his shoulder and like he, he knocked it out of the park. I think he defined a certain character type as well like he created i mean could neo and uh agent smith and um lawrence fishburne's character would they have been possible if not for pulp fiction you know i don't think so i'm not following oh just like the dark sunglasses and the dark suit and the like the super cool uh aloof sort of aloof disposition i mean the i've always kind of understood that the certain a certain thread of character was born out of Reservoir Dogs and uh, Pulp Fiction, like Fight Club, um, Fight Club and and uh, The Matrix are the two main ones I think of. The like, sort of like hip, ironic or even post ironic sort of hipster, uh, who's like self aware of how cool they are, and it's like highly stylized. Like, and it's just crazy to me that that he uses like an older kind of frumpier dad bod John Travolta to embody this character archetype to create this character archetype really. Yeah. He kind of, he kind of, he probably just gave a lot of older filmmakers and directors like a new burst of energy when they saw his films. And that's, that's why, you know, Tarantino says this all the time, but that's why it is a young man's game. Yeah, he does say you know, that. That's because why they're, he, they're he... the ones who 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 always, you know, bring something like not only fresh, but also like it has that like still like almost teenage rage inside of it that like just just gets it over the finish line. That's why um, when I saw Gangs of New York, which I, I should probably watch again, but when I saw Gangs of New York, I was like, all right, that's it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Scorsese's too old now. I mean, it like Goodfellas ballooned into Casino, which ballooned into Gangs of New York. But then he did The Departed and uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, and they were like a return to form. I, I you know, I always wondered if uh, someone else had a hand in the departed and the wolf of wall street because they are so good and they're so much better than casino and 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 gangs in new york uh but but either way um who knows maybe somebody else had a hand in gangs in new york and that's why it it, it didn't hit for me but everything tarantino's saying about like directors getting too old and and you could tell in their movies uh, the first thing i thought was like yeah that's how i felt about gangs in new york yeah, I mean you lose you lose touch with what you described in Pulp Fiction like the the shot where he's walking along where where Bruce Willis is walking along the fence line like you lose you get caught up with these fucking industry people and the whole life it brings you that you just you forget you forget about those things that like 
tether you to reality because there's nothing like once you get sucked up by like the film industry like that, like it, you have to fight to like maintain a level of normalcy. You know, that's a really good point. Um, Tarantino. I, I, I don't know for sure. And, and, you know, directors never hardly ever like to admit this. It looks like they kind of left him alone for his whole career. I mean, everything he does is pretty trademark. And uh, I don't know if the industry ever fucked with any of his movies. Like if, if I don't know if you know the story of Terminator one and Terminator two uh, and how different those two movies are, how gritty the first one is and how uh, kind of brutal and unrelenting it is. It's very dark. And then Terminator two is like trying to be this like kids movie basically. And it's trying to appeal to um, a wide audience. And the story is that the studio basically just took Terminator 2 away from James Cameron and just did whatever they wanted for it. Uh, they made the kids super annoying. It was their idea that Arnold wouldn't kill anybody in it. Um, and I don't think that ever happened to Tarantino. I don't think he ever had a movie taken away from him because even the the parts, the things he does that I don't like in some of his later movies that I think are misses... They still seem like Tarantino trademark, you know, flourishes. Yeah, I mean, he reinvented something that was felt like it was already tapped out to many. So he 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 deserved that type of autonomy, but he also fought for it. And, you know, the only thing I could think of is splitting Kill Bill into two movies like that and his uh the rewrites on natural born killers are the only two from what I can tell the two sour moments in his career. Yeah. Where, oh, was he, he was he, he pissed that he had to, was he pissed about breaking kill bill up? I didn't know that he was mad about it at, at the time. He always saw it as one film. Um, and he wrote it as one film. So I would be pissed, you know, yeah. I, I haven't, I haven't read it. I'm just, I'm probably just assuming, but I mean, it it seems like one of those things where it's like, oh, we can make double the money, like executive right, producer right, steps right. in, like we're doing this whether you like it or not. There's just too much money to be made, you know, and and, and part of the reason he gets the creative uh, uh, autonomy that he does is because his movies always make money. Right, right. Yeah, they do. They do. Um, I've brought up... Uh... Sin City before and I asked you if you'd read those comics because I never actually did you see the second Sin City movie long time ago this might be in that but I don't think it is but one of the Sin City comics I think it's the fourth one volume four it's all about like this team of female ninja assassins and uh Frank Miller was like all over all the stuff that Tarantino got into to for Kill Bill, like the Japanese movies and the Japanese comics. And there's this comic Lady Snowblood, and I guess it was a movie too. Uh, have you seen that or have you read the comic? No. All right. Well, there's this comic called. Uh, uh, Is it the well, the, the Jap Japanese movie? There's a well. There's a movie called Shogun Assassin. Yeah. That is in the second Kill Bill, which is based on the comic book Lone Wolf and Cub. And Frank Miller drew the cover of, for the first four volumes 
of the American release of Lone Wolf and Cub. And Lady Snowblood was contemporary with Lone Wolf and Cub. I'm almost positive it was the same artist and writer as well. I have to double check that. Uh, and it's about a woman who is like slighted by her lover or I think they even tried to kill her. And the whole story is her going and taking revenge. And then there, there's a movie. So Kill Bill is like ostensibly based on Lady Snowblood. But uh, I, I assume he was reading these Frank Miller comics as well, because Frank Miller obviously read Lone Wolf and Cub, having done the covers and probably read Lady Snowblood. And he had this team of ninja female ninja assassins in Sin City. So watching that movie and like being a Frank Miller fan, because he had uh, this was like that whole era where 300 came out and Sin City came out. Um, but but he had a, a Batman comic called The Dark Knight that came out in the 80s. That was like kind of what put him on the map. Um, and he had written one of the RoboCop movies. I think it was the second or the third one, although I guess he's pissed about it and he thinks they butchered it. But I remember getting into um, Frank Miller because of all this stuff. And he has this other comic called Ronin, which is about a, a samurai um, in America, an American samurai. in I think New York City. And anyway, these movies are all like of a of a part of this whole like like genre of film. And like the RZA did the music for the first. Mm -hmm. Maybe the second one was in the second one, too. Um, and of course, Shogun Assassin was in. Uh, the the Jizz's album. So like Tarantino, the reason why he resonates so much, and this this is kind of my long winded way of getting to something we were talking about before we were recording. Tarantino kind of like kind of like vindicated guys like me who were like super like nerdy at the time, and who was like into all this stuff that nobody was into. I mean, I, me and my friends didn't know anyone who had seen the movie Dead Alive. Mm -hmm. I never talked to anyone who knew who Frank Miller was until Sin City came out. You know what I mean? None of my friends were reading Batman comics. None of my friends were reading Frank Miller comics. And then Kill Bill comes out. So for guys like me, it's like a celebration of our like subculture. But it's also exposing a whole new audience of people to 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 a, a story and a film that's like heavily steeped in all of this pop culture that they were never aware of and probably never went back to look up in the first place. I mean, how many people have gone back and looked at all the movies that Quentin Tarantino is like taking inspiration from? And now I'm, I'm going on at length about Kill Bill. You can apply exactly this to all of his movies. I mean, you mentioned Bonnie and Clyde. That's a huge inspiration to him. Taxi Driver is a huge inspiration to him. These movies are written all over his films. Yeah, I would say... He has his heroes that he always kind of comes back to um, throughout, especially his earlier films. Um, and then Kill Bill happens, and it's more of just an overall, like you said, like subculture mashup, but also like he's doing in many ways what worked with the narrative and kind of these different pulp, pulp stories with Pulp Fiction. Um, he's doing that with like meta genre itself and like specific, like it's obvious with like Kung Fu Samurai times like Spaghetti Western, right? With Kill Bill. But then there's also like 
the black exploitation elements with like the humor and then also like combining genres with like the RZA doing the soundtrack. And then um, he even has like the black and white, like silent film kind of gangster cinema, almost like very, very pre, you know, early Hollywood look mashed in there. And I wouldn't like Frank Miller. I don't know enough about him to know if he's pulling from it, but from my vantage point, it's just him experimenting with like remixing narrative and story, but with genre itself on like a very meta meta, like bird's eye level. And, you know, that's, that's where I think the postmodern critique can come in and, and have some, some weight, but before then with like what he's doing with reservoir dogs and Pulp Fiction, it's, it just doesn't, doesn't stand on two legs, you know, but like the, the criticism you mean, or what the I was criticism, saying about the, the criticism you mentioned earlier. Yeah. 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 I agree about, with you completely. It it has at least a couple legs to stand on and I'll give credit where credit's due there. Like, like you said, it it kind of feels like self-aware camp and like i totally agree with that but i like it you know i yeah. like it for what it is because he he's not just he's not just pulling from things that he thinks are going to wow he like he actually loves this shit you know yeah for sure man and just for the listener i double checked the guy who wrote lady snowblood also wrote lone wolf and cub They're, these these are manga um, yeah, that I mean, that's kind of what you're saying, what you just said. That's Tarantino's trademark. It's like, you know, Pulp Fiction is the gangster movies. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 1 is the samurai movies. Kill Bill Volume 2 is like the spaghetti western slash kung fu. And then um, uh, Inglorious Bastards is like the World War II drama or the World War II like uh, action movie. Um, obviously, Django's the western. Hateful Eight is the western. Uh so I think people started to get sick of it. I remember criticisms of him, which which is funny now that we're talking. A lot of the criticisms I read of him of his later movies were apparently the same criticisms he was getting of his early movies. I mean, I, I only remember it like with rose colored glasses of everybody just universally loving Pulp Fiction. But the stuff you said about how they criticized him, it's exactly it's exactly what they le leveled at him for Glorious Bastards. And of course, Django. I mean, of course, everybody praised Django, right? Like mm -hmm. you, you had have to. to. Yeah, you kind of have, have to. to. Right? <laughs> anyway, I keep I keep teasing. We are going to have a follow up. Our follow up is going to be on Django and Glorious and Death Proof and, you know, all his Isaac's Isaac's joining us, right? Yes. Oh, uh, shout out to Disgrace Propagandist. Isaac Simpson's been on the show two or three times. Um He's got a really good critique of those movies, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna come back and talk about them. So, listen, let's have break number two because I have talked so much. I need water. I, I need coffee. So let's. All right, do good. It. I'll be right back.
убивайте. Пожалуйста, не убивайте. Я вас очень прошу. Не убивайте. У меня мама... talk about like all the things we want to talk about with Pulp Fiction uh, there's just so much you could say we could probably do a three part episode just on that film so I was mentioning uh, all the things that went into um, the first Kill Bill before all the comics all the movies I mean I didn't even scratch the surface uh, Quentin Tarantino has an interview with a director where they literally exhaustively talk about all the things that inspired uh, Tarantino for Kill Bill, all the Japanese films, and it was played like uh, like a trivia where the 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 interviewer would ask like, okay, is this scene inspired by this movie, and is that scene inspired by that movie? And Tarantino would confirm or deny, and they must have gone through a hundred a um, <laughs> hundred movies. Uh, now I bring this up for a reason, but uh, just to indulge myself one more time, one last time before I I ha- hand it over to uh, Spendo because he's got a good insight on this. Um, if nobody's ever seen the director, and I might butcher his name because I don't know how to pronounce Japanese, Takashi Mike, it's M I I K E. Have you seen any of his movies, Spendo? Yeah, I believe so. He's <clears throat> done over a hundred. I think he's done a hundred and ten movies. And uh, I've he's only done s- he's done so many that like, yeah, yeah, I know this guy. I just pulled him up. He did like <laughs> he did classic. like thir- 13 assassins and he did uh, Blade of the Immortal and Blade of the Immortals, another Japanese manga that I read before seeing Kill Bill. Uh, so again, Kill Bill was like, you know, a big deal for me. And Blade of the Immortals, amazing comic. So is uh Lone Wolf and Cub. And Takashi Miike did the... Yeah, and he also did the film version of Blade of the Immortal. Now, these movies came out... Blade of the Immortal and 13 Assassins came out after um, Kill Bill. 
But he says in that interview that Mike was a big inspiration for him. And Mike's movies are basically just samurai splatter fests where mm-hmm. one guy chops up a hundred people by the end of the movie. Um, but my point in all this, right? What, what, it's not just, again, this isn't just the, the, the surface level, uh, postmodern, um, uh, lacking any depth, lacking any skill, lacking any insight. Tarantino is very conscientiously sort of like dredging up the films of the past and sort of synthesizing them together in this new thing. Cause that's the key. That's the important thing, right? If you, you, if you take things from the past and try to like dredge them up and represent them, you have to make something new with it. And I think he did make something new in kill bill for sure. Like, one of my things about Tarantino and the reason why he works or these films work is Kill Bill is not just another samurai movie. I mean, Kill Bill stands out. Kill Bill 2 is not just another uh, Western or it's not just another Kung Fu movie. It stands out. He does something. He brings something new or something different to uh, what he's sort of... Um, uh, mining for content and mining for inspiration. At the same time, I think the Kill Bill movies, and this is another reason why I think these these two in Pulp Fiction are so important. I think Kill Bill is just as much a turning point for cinema and film as Pulp Fiction is. But it's like the two movies, Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill, are themselves bookends. Like, like, uh, Pulp Fiction like reinvigorated Hollywood and ushered in this new era but Kill Bill kind of like represents the ending of that era in a way and now I could qualify this but I know you've done a lot of thinking about this and we've done a lot of talking about this and you said to me that Quentin Tarantino represents to you the death of celluloid and I certainly think like the end of the celluloid era in film is somewhere from Mulholland Drive to Kill Bill 2. I think that's like the 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 swan song of celluloid film. Um, but you're the expert here, and this was your your thing. So I, I really want to hear you lay this out for us. Well, it's interesting. I always before talking to you, I always thought of him as kind of the the end of film history. And what I what I meant was like it's almost like the the call it two and a half hour like medium of watching a movie in you know a movie theater with an audience like the the visual like syntax of it is is like fully maxed out through Tarantino. There's like not much more that can be reinvented. Like I really, you know. Who knows? Maybe there's another Tarantino that comes along that that does it. I, I doubt it. And then when I talk to you and like what draws me to your podcast too is like how much you're attacking this this postmodern culture we're in through like a digital angle. And like it, it kind of clicked. It's it's not just like the end of like film history. It's like, it's like he, he, he shoots on actual film, you know, 35 millimeter, sometimes 70 millimeter film and, and 
he's he's a purist in that regard. Probably one of the only areas he is a purist as a filmmaker. And still, because he remixed so much and brought brought these images from other genres, scenes from other genres, styles from other directors, um, even characters from film history into the modern world and like created this like beautiful entertaining like love child with like modern sensibilities like i don't see this like i see him you're right with kill bill like i see him ushering in this like digital clusterfuck we're in you know, and people who try to do what he did are just going to be in many ways like aping Tarantino. Um, I mean, he say what you will about him, you know, machine gunning Hitler in, in Inglorious Bastards. If anyone <laughs> was going to do that, someone had to do it. I'm glad it was Tarantino. Yeah, you're right. You know, he put his foot down where he needed to um, with with this this world war two lore our culture is currently just always, it seems consumed in. Right. And, you know, he's, 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 he's a DJ of the visual medium, right. Of the films. Like he's, he's always remixing shit and he's, he's, he's putting a lot. He's not just doing it flippantly. He's putting a lot of fucking time into it. And, and like we talked about earlier, making sure he's he's going to be entertained when he sits down to watch the film but also by proxy like your average you know audience member is going to be entertained but even more you're like cinephile is going to be going to have a lot to sink its his or her teeth into yeah, the crazy thing about that is what i was saying before like guys like me being the guy the one guy reading manga in 1999 um, cause it wasn't like it is now, uh, while cinephiles have a lot to sink their teeth into this stuff resonates with people who have no idea what he's referencing. And I didn't know what he was referencing until Kill Bill came along. It's the only movie he did where I was like familiar with like the backstory, uh, mainly cause I was into comic books, but, uh, so for for those of us who haven't seen all the movies that he's, he's trying to evoke, uh, it still works, you know, and you have to really be like a, a film buff or a film student to uh, to really know where all this is coming from. Yeah, it's true. And I've had two I've had two experiences watching Tarantino movies, you know, one during my formative years where I was just kind of the norm normie audience member. And then now after watching all the films, you know, being educated at a at a at a film school and kind of going back and taking my own time to like pour through film history and kind of trying to see see what it is from a more adult perspective like it's 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 there's I, i'm still pulling more and more from it and i'm not surprised that like you can watch kill bill and be like did you pull this from this and that and like honestly like at this point, like Tarantino's just knows intuitively what works. Like 
you can say, yeah, I pulled that from that, you know, and there's obvious examples, but like, I feel like you're, you're grasping at straws. Like he's just, he was raised in like the movie theater pretty much. Like he just knows what, what works with audiences and what works with him. So he just goes with his, with his gut on that. Dude. And there's a critique in there. We're losing, we're losing our touch on reality for sure. Um, but I can't knock anyone who who's truly like listening to their instincts and going for it and making it work. Yeah. Especially from a place of like passion that comes from a young age, you know? You see, I know I said I wasn't going to do this, but I don't, I didn't feel what you're saying come through in like Inglorious Bastards and Django, it didn't feel like it was coming from that place. I don't know. And hatefully, I like that movie better than other people do. A lot of people think it's irredeemable, but I and I think a lot of reasons people don't like it is because it's just a stupid Western. But at least it felt like he was having a lot of fun with that movie because he loves Westerns, you know. Um, and in many ways, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a return to form. And I think I'm glad even though I don't love that movie, I don't hate it either. I am glad his last movie was really a true return to form. And what you're saying about him really going for it and going with his gut and doing what he loved. I mean, that definitely come, came through in that movie, if nothing else did. Yeah, I feel I feel most strongly with what you're saying about Hateful Eight, for sure. Oh, wait, which part? About him having fun, yeah. Hollywood's obviously having fun, like. But more from like a, almost like a. I don't know, big, big, big budget flex. Like he shut down Hollywood Boulevard, you know, and 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 they 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 pulled cars from the era onto that street, and he had like full rain on shooting that whole whole street do you know how much fucking money that costs Dude, i, I and, didn't like, know that planning? that's, that's like, yeah, he's, yeah it's like that's it's badass. a huge flex to be able to do that but yeah, that, is, that is a flex that's like yeah. vanilla sky level clearing out mm -hmm. times square which is also fucking insane yeah exactly so anyway sorry i let us get sidetracked uh because we actually ended up covering like all 10 of his movies really. <laughs> except for death proof but we're going to talk about that next time um but I want to get back to the death of celluloid thing and and kind of qualify and, and sort of elaborate a little bit more on some of the things we were saying about that, because th there's two angles to this, in my opinion. Well, but they're 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 really wrapped up together. But the two different perspectives on how to take where film went and what happened to the movies the first is the actual medium itself of film versus digital. And then the second is the uh, experience of going to the movies as a shared experience, cultural experience. But actually, one does follow the other. I mean, the loss of the cinema happened because of the, the way the digital medium operates. So the digital medium is more conducive you can download it right to your laptop or your phone or you can stream it 
on your phone or your laptop, wherever you are. I mean, you don't even have to have Wi-Fi on your phone. You just have to have phone service. You can watch the movie. So uh, film was like too cumbersome and too clunky to do that with. You had to like rent the huge clunky VHS and bring in or the DVD, which itself was, you know, cumbersome enough. A um, little bit of an improvement over the uh, VHS, but you still had to bring it home to this hardware, this DVD player or this VHS player. And then you played it on a television that sound and visual was just so laughably inferior to telev uh, to the film, to the movies, to the cinema, that nobody in their right mind would ever compare the experience of watching it on a television VHS to watching it on the big screen. It's just two completely different experiences. And that was that was smashed. That was broken down by the by the digital. And by the you know the the individual personalized devices uh, and the way you watch movies instead of the whole family the sitting and watching the thing together, each person is watching.